Open your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 1. We continue in our exploration of the creation that is narrated for us through God's Word by Moses, penned likely during the wilderness wanderings after the exodus from Egypt. And we come to the penultimate day of creation, day 6, where there are actually two creative acts that take place on this day. God has created already the heavens and the earth. He's gathered the waters into one sea. He's brought forth the dry land from beneath the waters. He created the luminaries in the sky, the sun, the moon, the stars, a hundred billion galaxies. He brought forth vegetation, plants and trees with seed after their own kind. He filled the skies and the waters with millions of living creatures with incredible beauty and diversity. And here on day six, He creates... The land creatures. This is a continuation of what God created in the waters and in the skies, although it is a different day. I'm treating it as a continuation. That's why it's number three. And so God has formed the shapeless earth on days one through three, and now God has, is filling the earth on days four through six. And so the land creatures of day six are a creative parallel to day three when God created the vegetation. The plants that would spring forth from, excuse me, the plants and the vegetation that spring forth from earth on day three is what will feed the living creatures that he creates on day six. Day six also contains the pinnacle of creation, man, which is something that we will begin to look at next week. I don't know that we'll get through that in one week, but uh, we'll see where we go. But we're going to look at verses 24 and 25 today and see what God's Word says to us about this very simply stated act of creation. Then God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures after their kind, cattle and creeping things and beasts of the earth after their, own, after their kind, and it was so. God made the beasts of the earth after their kind and the cattle after their kind and everything that creeps on the ground after its kind, and God saw that it was good. So as God creates the land creatures, as with the rest of creation, Moses' concern is not with providing an explanation that would satisfy modern scientific inquiry. He's concerned with proclaiming the glory and the power and the wisdom of God in creation just through the simple spoken word. He's dispelling the mythologies that the Israelites were so familiar with through their 430 years in slavery to the nation of Egypt who had over a thousand little g-gods. He's creating a history for the Israelites and for all mankind to as to the creative work of the only true God that should cause mankind to marvel, to worship, to bow in humble adoration to the sovereign God and submit to His sovereign rule as we recognize who He is, as we see the handiwork of His creative power. So as with each day of creation, there is a creative command that we see here in verse 24. And God said, as well as the fulfillment of this command, and it was so. Just as simple as that, and God said, fill in the blank, and it was so. Verse 25 serves as a repetition of this creative command and its fulfillment in exactly what it is that God has created. So in creating the land creatures, we are given three generic categories. Now these categories 
include everything from insects and worms to elephants and giraffes and everything in between. Modern biologists classify this living creature on the, on the earth with a fairly complex system called the Linnean or the Linnaean system. It is, what it does is it classifies the animal kingdom, uh, the animal world rather, by kingdom, by phylum, by class, by order, by family, by genus, and by species. But Moses is simply recording for us a very general designation of what it is that God has created. So Moses' account is not concerned with the detail of this Linnean system. He's simply describing the all-encompassing act of creation expressed alongside the birds in the sky, the sea monsters, and every living creature that moves and here three generic categories of land creatures. So the biblical account makes clear that the creation of all living creatures was instantaneous and was not the result of millions of years of evolution. God decreed and it was so. To insert a pause of millions and billions of years into this narrative is very, very poor hermeneutic or very, very poor biblical interpretation. No species, whether fish, bird, or land animal, evolved from another species, but were intentionally and intelligently created by God. Now, before we get into the categories, notice how this act of creation begins. It says very specifically, let the earth bring forth. Now that it does not imply that there is any creative force in the earth itself or that there is any power in the soil to generate life. It is simply an expression that God uses to describe how he is going to create this varied land animal spectrum through the common soil of the earth. It isn't suggesting that these life forms evolved from inanimate matter. It simply reminds us that the creatures God made are composed of the very same elements of the earth. Now in chapter 2, where we will look at the creative work of God in more detail, as it is explained to us in more detail, we would read this specifically about this aspect of creation in verse two, in chapter 2, 19a. Out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky. So it is God's creative act out of the ground. It is not the ground of the soil's creative act in and of itself. The same thing will be said about the creation of man in Genesis 2, 7. Then the Lord God formed a man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. So think about this. You could go out into our yard and you could dig a bucket of dirt out of the ground. You could separate the grass and the rock and the stick and all the other stuff and you could be left with nothing but the soil. And out of that soil, God would have the capacity to create tens of thousands of creatures simply by saying, let it be so. Nothing in the earth itself, it is simply God's spoken word that out of the ground, out of the earth, all of these creatures were created. It's also interesting and should be noted that five times in this day of creation, in the creation of these land creatures, the phrase 
of its own kind is used five times. And in the Genesis 1 narrative, that same phrase is used ten times. So this underscores two important points. We began this this discussion last time, and we'll hit it a little bit here. We'll visit visit it again later. So number one, there is great variety in what God created. And two, there is specific limitation on these varieties that God has created, meaning that what God has created does not evolve into different species. As we talked about last week, modern science has given us insight and fact into the genetic code that exists within the species that are in our world, and there is no mutation of genetic code that allows for a new species to emerge. One of the great examples of that was the fruit fly. It's been studied for over a 100 years, and no matter what you do to the genetic code, you never get anything different from a fruit fly. You don't even get a better fruit fly. You just get a variation of the fruit fly. So mutation of genetic code can cause a form of evolution known as microevolution, where the characteristics of a species are slightly altered. We see this example in the dog world where there are hundreds of variations of dog. We also see it in the horse world. These are all products of microevolution. But nowhere did you take a mouse and a fish and join them together and get a horse. That just is impossible based upon upon the genetic code. Genetic mutation cannot explain macroevolution, which is the theoretical process by which a whole new species emerges over millions or even billions of years as these creatures acquire characteristics based upon survival of the fittest and natural selection, etc., etc., and something different from a snake emerges after hundreds of millions of years. While there is great variety in creation, the the genetic code limitation describes what the Bible defines as of its own kind. Now, I think it's fascinating to recognize that what God inspired Moses to write in this phrase of its own kind can be proven scientifically through the genetic code, although scientists would never recognize this insight in the biblical narrative. Naturalists, those who deny a supernatural creation event, will stick to their guns, and it's becoming increasingly difficult to do so, to defend the theory of evolution and the multitude of species that exist through the process of natural selection and survival of the fittest. There's a good Greek word for that theory. You know what it is? It's baloney. It's just baloney. It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't stand up, and it will not. And I believe that as time goes by, and as men become more capable of looking into the power and the the miracle of creation, they're going to have to come back and say, we can't explain this through evolution. We just can't honestly do that anymore. We don't know what to say. Maybe that time will come in our lifetimes. It's hard to say. Let's look at these three categories that are so simply laid out for us here in Genesis chapter 1, 24 and 25. The first category is cattle. Now the Hebrew word translated for cattle is a word that is often used as a general way of describing domesticated livestock. We would see the word cattle and we would automatically 
limit that to a cow, but it actually means far more than just a cow. Sheep, goats, oxen, and many other animals that are capable of domestication would fit into this category. And I think you could probably think about a farm. All the different animals that exist on a farm that can be domesticated in some form or fashion. And this is the idea of the category of cattle. cattle. Now my goal is to explore the power and wisdom of God's creation and to see why the theory of complex animal life evolving from inanimate matter or from other life matter is simply silly as expressed through the theory of evolution. I'm not trying to give you a lesson in zoology or biology or looking into the miracle of animal world to fill up a bunch of time. What I want for us to be able to do is to look at the simple the simple act of creation and be amazed at how complex it is and what appears to us to be a seemingly simple living organism. Now verse 24 says cattle, and so let's look at the cow. The digestive system of a cow is a great wonder of creative design. Cows have a stomach that actually is comprised or divided into four separate chambers. When a cow eats grass or hay, the partially chewed fiber passes into the cow's first stomach called the rumen. Therefore, it, there, there it ferments for one to two days. The presence of helpful bacteria in the rumen causes fermentation, which begins the process of breaking down cellulose and converting it into simple sugars. The first chamber of the cow's stomach is huge, holding the equivalent of almost 50 gallons. Have you ever wondered why a, a, a cow's stomach is so big? There you go. Think about a 55-gallon barrel, barrel drum and rounding that off and jamming it into the abdomen of a stomach, the abdomen of a cow. That's basically what you have in the rumen. The first chamber of the cow's stomach, excuse me, the, but when a cow drinks water, typically 25 to 50 gallons a day, The water bypasses the rumen and flows directly into the second chamber, the reticulum, where it is mixed with digestive enzymes and more fermentation bacteria. Meanwhile, muscular movement of the stomach chamber rolls the fodder into chamber one into little balls, and the partially fermented balls are then passed into the second chamber, where they are then infused with the enzyme-saturated liquid. Huh. Later, when the cow is not actively feeding, it will regurgitate these soggy balls of fiber from the second stomach chamber and chew them more finely before swallowing them. Again, you know what that's called? It's called chewing the cud. Chewing the cud is mentioned in Leviticus 11.3. And this is not up there for you. You didn't want to cycle back and forth through the cow. Here's what it says. And this is talking about the clean animals that the Israelites could eat. Whatever divides a hoof, thus making split hoofs, and chews the cud among the animals that you may eat. So what is, what is very generally described as a clean animal for the Israelite to eat is actually describing a highly complex digestive miracle 
that scientists wouldn't discover for thousands of years. Do you think the ancient man, when they dissected a cow to eat it and to make use of all of its parts, said, oh, look at that, there's a four-chamber stomach here. And this is what chamber one does and chamber two does and chamber three does and chamber four does. Wow, I wonder if we should even eat this thing. Do you think they said that or thought that? Heck no, they dug in and ate because it was survival. It was food. So the Bible describes chewing the cud thousands of years before scientists ever would understand this complex system. So a typical cow spends about six hours a day eating and about eight hours a day chewing the cud. The cud, after more chewing, is swallowed again, and this time, in a near-liquid state, it passes directly into the second chamber. The construction of the second chamber enables the chewed cud to be filtered. Smaller particles are permitted to pass into the third chamber. The larger particles that remain in the second chamber are regurgitated again for more chewing. The third chamber is called the omasum. Their excess liquid is reabsorbed into the cow system and the thoroughly chewed cud is compacted while its chemical composition is broken down even more by the digestive process. The thoroughly refined food then passes from the third chamber into the fourth called the obamasum or the obasum. This chamber works much like the stomachs of other mammals. It secretes strong acid and digestive enzymes, completing the digestive process. From there, nutrients pass into the cow's blood system, sustaining the cow and providing vital nutrients for milk production. This remarkable design enables a cow to enjoy a nutritious meal from a simple bale of hay, something that is impossible for mammals not equipped with this multi-chambered stomachs capable of digesting cellulose. It is a wonderfully efficient design converting cellulose, which we cannot digest, into foods that we can, like milk and cream and butter and cheese and other dairy products. Think of this, the average dairy cow can produce as much as three gallons of milk a day. The question is, how did the cow develop such a complex digestive system? How was it able to acquire this ability accidentally or through genetic mutation or through their collaboration over millions of years as they got together in seminars and congresses and teaching environments and said, well, you know what we need to do is we need to develop another chamber in our stomach so we don't die. How how is it that they can possibly do that? apart from an intentional and an intelligent design. Now that is a that is one animal, one part of the cattle, the domesticated livestock, a cow that has such a complex digestive system that their only rational way of understanding or explaining that is through the intelligent design of a creator. There are numbers of other domesticated animals that have similar complex systems that allow them to survive that in no way, shape, or form could ever be explained through accidental mutation or through natural selection over millions of years. Let's look at the second category. Letter B, the creeping things. 
Well, what does that include? (laughs) Well, the creeping things would include countless forms of insects, worms, arachnids, reptiles, small mammals, and many, many other amazing creatures. So according to the Smithsonian Institute, there are 900,000 different species of insect that have been cataloged, and the conservative estimate that there are at least 2 million yet to be cataloged, and the other spectrum of estimation goes as high as 300 million. So thinking about 900 catalog species and a range of other creatures, insects, that have not yet been cataloged between 2 million and 300 million, and God simply said, let there be. So scientists continually discover new variety of insect every day, just as they continually discover new variety of sea creature every day. And I didn't mention this last week, but here's what... Here's what the marine biologists tell us, is that 90% of marine life exists in the first 600 feet of water, because that's as deep as sunlight can penetrate. It was long believed that beneath that light level, it was impossible for any creature to exist. And as man's capability has increased to go beneath that 600 foot level for long periods of time with sufficient light and oxygen, and the ability to not get crushed like a tin can beneath the immense pressure, they continually find life where they never dreamt life to be possible. Now the highest point on earth that we know of is Mount Everest. The deepest canyons in the ocean go way beyond that. In fact, they're deeper than we have the ability to even map with the great technology that we have at our fingers today. So in addition to this 200 to 3 million uncatalogued species that could exist, it is also estimated that on any given day there are as many as 10 quintillion living insects around the world on any given day, 10 quintillion, which comprises around 80% of the entire world's species population. Think about that. (laughs) 10 quintillion living insects on any given day. And God said, let there be creeping things come forth from the earth. Think about this, ants. Ants which range in size from one-tenth of a centimeter to one inch have been cataloged in almost 10,000 different species and estimates are that there are thousands more that have yet to be discovered and cataloged. Experts believe that all the world's ants combined would outweigh all the humans in the world. Think about that. You take every living living human being and put them on a scale and every ant species that exists and the ants would outweigh the humans. Is that fascinating or what? And God simply said, let there be. So let's look at one incredible insect. This is the bombardier beetle. This beetle is found mainly in the deserts of New Mexico. It was created with a unique defense mechanism that is impossible to explain by evolutionary theory. This beetle produces two chemicals in separate reservoirs in its abdomen. The two, the two chemicals, hydroquinone and hydrogen peroxide, are harmless by themselves, but potentially explosive when combined. 
So when the beetle is attacked, it releases the chemicals through a movable jet at the rear of its abdomen. Catalytic enzymes in a tiny reaction chamber just inside the expulsion valve set the chemical reaction in motion and at precisely the right moment. The beetle aims its its abdominal turret and releases the explosive mixture in the face of its predator. The combined chemicals instantly reach the temperature of boiling water, creating a surprise and a deterrent that is powerful enough to discourage most predators. The beetle can fire up to five shots in rapid succession, and he instinctively knows how to time the explosion so that it occurs the moment after the chemicals are expelled, never in the reaction chamber where it would instantly destroy the beetle. How does the bombardier beetle know how to do this? How long do you think it would take our military to develop a similar defense mechanism? How many trial and error would it take? And how many explosions would there be before they would ever be able to perfect it? Could a complex system possibly have developed through some natural evolutionary process? Think about all that is involved and what the bombardier does when it expels this chemical reaction. It must be able to produce just the right chemicals, keeping them in separate reservoirs, and bring them together at the right time with the necessary catalytic enzymes. He must also possess all the equipment and ability necessary to combine the explosives, to aim the mixture accurately, and fire precisely before the moment of explosion. How reasonable is it to think that this ability was the result of accidental mutation or the result of hundreds of millions of years of evolution. The bombardier beetle is the byproduct, excuse me, is the product of intelligent and intentional designs. Now, creeping things would also include reptiles. The reptile world is full of wonders. Look at this. This is a chameleon. A chameleon can not only change colors instantly to match their background so as to not be able to be seen by predators, they are also able to move one eye independently from the other and see two separate scenes at the same time. Could you imagine what it would be like if you and I saw two separate scenes? I would be tripping and stumbling and falling over everything. I wouldn't know what, where would I go and what, what am I actually seeing. But the chameleon is able to mask its background so it can be unseen from predator. Another reptile, which is absolutely amazing, is the basilisk. The basilisk is a lizard that can literally run on water. The toes of its hind feet have flaps that remain furled when he walks on land like this. But if chased by a predator, he will unfurl these toes on the back of his feet and it will give him this large paddle and he will be able to run on top of a body of water very quickly for an extended period of time to avoid the predator that is now chasing him. How was this basilisk able to accidentally acquire 
this remarkable characteristic. And by the way, there is no other known creature that has this capability. Totally unique to the basilisk. Just like the bombardier beetle's capability is totally unique to it. God simply said, let the earth produce creeping things. The last category, letter C, beasts of the field, which comprises everything else. (laughs) Elephants, lions, tigers, giraffes, coyotes, wolves, other large and long-legged animals that would not fit the category of cattle, excuse me, of cattle, domesticated livestock, or creeping things like insects and worms and small mammals. So the beast of the earth would also include the now extinct species of dinosaurs. It is widely believed that Job is the earliest book in all the Bible, and it seems that Job, that God described to Job something that Job had seen in his lifetime, and that would be a behemoth. It says in Job chapter chapter 40, Behold now behemoth which I made, as well as you, he eats grass like an ox. Behold now his strength is in his loins and his power in the muscles of his belly. He bends his tail like a cedar. The sinews of his his thighs are knit together. His bones are tubes of bronze. His limbs are like bars of iron. Some would argue that this would describe an elephant or perhaps even a hippopotamus, but their tails are very thin. They go nothing like a cedar tree. There's a lot of theory about when the dinosaurs went extinct and how they went extinct. Evolutionists, naturalists talk about the asteroids that fell from the earth that were able to particularly target dinosaurs and nothing else. I don't know how that happened. There's a lot of different theories. It's it's hypothesized that dinosaurs likely went out extinct around the time of the flood, um, probably around after the flood, believed to be Job's appearance after the flood, but there's the inability to say specifically when dinosaurs went extinct or how they went extinct, but it's clear that the dinosaurs, as described to us in all the books, no longer exist. So, let's take a look at the beasts of the earth. We'll take a look at the largest animal that roams our earth today, and that is the elephant. You're familiar with with what an elephant looks like, right? Some interesting things about the elephant. The elephant's trunk is one of the wonders of the animal kingdom. It is strong enough to lift large logs, yet sensitive enough to pick up a single peanut off the ground. It is the organ with which he drinks, breathes, and feeds himself. It is also his chief means of feeling objects in order to determine their size, their texture, and their temperature. The trunk of a typical elephant weighs 300 pounds. It holds up to four gallons of water. It is about seven feet long and comprises the elephant's nose and upper lip. No other animal can grip things or pick up things with its nose. The aardvark is similar, but it can't pick up things like the elephant can. Yet evolutionists believe these remarkable features developed in the elephant by complete accident. Let's take a look at the bear. This is a black bear in hibernation. Bears are also fantastic creatures. They are able to hibernate in some climates for up to seven months. Bear hibernation is different from other kinds of hibernation observed in other animals. Look at this. When smaller animals such as squirrels and shrews hibernate, their body temperature falls to near freezing and their heart rate slows to only one 
or two beats per minute. Amazing all by itself. They go into a cold, dormant state from which it takes considerable amount of time for them to be awakened and to literally thaw out. A bear's hibernation, however, is more like a long and deep night's sleep. The bear's body temperature drops no more than 10 degrees Fahrenheit. His heart rate slows but maintains a rhythm of at least 12 beats per minute. If he's disturbed, he can awaken very quickly from his hibernation. And while he is asleep, he neither eats nor does he eliminate any food. And most animals, enduring months without elimination, would cause a fatal buildup of toxins in the blood. Other, hi- other hibernating animals do eliminate during their hibernation, but the bear's body is designed to accommodate long months of sleep without any kind of, em- of elimination. He burns stored fat for fuel, but it, has, as, it is as if there is no waste produced by the burning of the fat. And for reasons that biologists cannot explain, the level of uric acid and other toxins in the bear's blood remains essentially the same as when he is not hibernating. The blood in a bear that is hibernating is virtually unchanged from his blood when he is doing his normal things. And you and I know that if we go get a blood draw, it will look radically different than a blood draw if we've been fasting for 12 hours. Whatever we eat automatically is put into our bloodstream and it can be detected, yet these fatal toxins that would accumulate in most other hibernating animals are not present in the bear. How was it that the bear was able to develop this ability unique from any other created being that we are now aware of? It can't be explained. Every beast of the earth shows evidence of special and intentional design. All of them are born with instinctive intelligence that enables them to survive and thrive in other environments. All of them have remarkable capabilities that set them apart from other beasts. It is no wonder, because all of them were created by an all-wise, all-powerful creator, and he created them simply by speaking them into existence. His vast creative wisdom may be clearly seen in all that he has made. And we're brought back to Romans 1.20, which very simply says, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. Now I wonder what Paul would have wrote if God had given to him the capability to know what modern science knows today and explaining the worthiness of the, of the Creator to be worshipped by man. What do you think Paul would have said? Beyond what is said here in Romans 1.20, what would Paul have said? What would the ancient world have thought about this God of the Israelites, this God of the Christian, this God personified in Jesus Christ? What would they thought had they known the truth about creation? I think it's remarkable how easily our technologically savvy and intelligent man today can just simply say, yeah, but that's the Bible. And they use the Bible as a means of dismissing what it says about creation. And then they use science to dismiss the narrative of creation that explains it all. Well, our passage here ends with a very familiar phrase, verse 25, and God saw that it was good. 
Now, this is significant because it rules out the possibility of deformities or mutations prior to Adam's fall into sin. It eliminates the possibility of natural selection and survival of the fittest, as evolutionists theorize. There were no unfit animals. There was no imperfection. There was no inferiority. It was all good exactly as God had designed. And so the first act of creation on day six completes the earthly habitat that God was making for Adam. Think about that. What God has miraculously, powerfully, intelligently created, not only screams of His worthiness to be worshipped, but we recognize that all of this was made for us. Earth was a paradise. Everything was good. And God saw that it was now time for the crowning aspect of His creation, a creature that would be made in His own image. I wonder how different our world would be if every man, woman, and child understood the truth of this God that created this world that they live in. What difference would there be in our world? It would be amazing. And as we will learn in Genesis chapter 3, sin changed it all. It changed it all. But God created a perfect environment for Adam. And He will recreate a perfect environment for the redeemed when all is said and done. Would you join me in prayer?